0: Good morning. How's everybody doing? Okay, great. Yes, it's a cloudy day, but we're here with the Lord. Awesome. Hey, you know, we talked a little bit about last Sunday night. I want to start with that a little bit, and the idea that, you know, when I think of, and our topic today is this idea of Christian fellowship, Christian community, Um, if I were to give a definition of what that entailed, I would say it and describe it this way. Whenever I felt like I felt like the closest to God and through the community is when I've been at something and I didn't want to leave. You know what I'm saying? And I think last Sunday night at this baptismal service, we were planning for 300. We had about 500 people there. It was was just, it felt like a little bit of old school youth quake on the corner of our building out here on the parking lot and in the grass with kids throwing hedge apples and people sitting in all the chairs and people standing behind them and people in cars watching us in this rinky dink pool uh, sharing the stories and the lives of our body and people being uh, obedient in baptism. It was a powerful, powerful time together. You know, I have a number of those moments where I feel like, you know what, I just don't want to leave. It's like, this is... Is this what heaven's going to be like? Is this, is this what God meant when he, when he gave us this incredible community called the church that we're looking at in Acts 2? I had another one of those experiences even last week as well. On a Friday, rainy Friday, um, I became a grandfather again. It was pretty cool, yeah. Became a grandpa again, 73 inches, 156 pounds. Yeah, a little big. The delivery was a little bit uh, crazy. Uh, it's been about five plus years in coming for my daughter Morgan to adopt, uh, Laquante Cortez Allen Weiss. Yeah, yeah, pretty cool. I thought I would pull a Zane or even a Jim and try to bring the grandkid up and hold him, but just a little bit too big and, uh, I didn't want to see him blush, so I didn't want to do that to him, but... You know, it was, it was an awesome moment, and it felt like, you know, I don't want this, I don't want this moment, I don't want it to end. Uh, as we drove her over in the rain on a Friday and knew <laughs> that probably some, some people I worked with were going to be there and then to, to see a room just filled with my brothers and sisters um, and just trying to keep it together, and I did, uh, which is surprising for me. Just try to keep to myself and, and just was in the presence of some people I love dearly Um, some people that not just from this church but even other churches in the Tulsa community where Morgan's been connected from Owasso it was just a powerful moment and I had been in this courtroom a number of times with Morgan uh, hoping to encourage uh, her uh, and and Q during this whole process and this courtroom was different than any courtroom I had been in attending there for the last two years uh, because there were balloons and there were people that were celebrating because this was adoption Friday at the courthouse. And I, and I thought maybe I got an understanding of why the people like the judges and the lawyers do what they do because they live for this day, a Friday where things become right at some level, become new. You see, it's in that kind of a scenario and situation that, that, I, that I don't want to leave. And I think as I look in Acts 2, I see thousands of people who are gathering who don't want to leave. Uh, And I think it's a beautiful picture as we're going to navigate ourselves through verses 42 through 47 uh, in this incredible picture. But before we get there, I want to just tell us about something that you're probably already aware of. Social science has taught us that. In the last 50 years, there's just been a slow burn of people, especially in America, disengaging from community. And we're seeing it's, it's apparent in, in all areas around us. Robert Putman, in his national bestseller book, Bowling Alone, describes it this way as he addresses this cultural shift in dealing with the collapse of the American community and then trying to give answers for its revival. He points to several things in there, and I think it's, a, it's an interesting read. He points to the shift in how we allocate our time that 50 years ago, our time, honestly, coming off World War II, I wasn't born at that time, but as I've studied it and seen that people stopped whatever and went to war, a lot of women went into the workforce. And so there was this, this idea of everybody working alongside each other, and, and America, in its most drastic moment, came together as, as, a, as, a, as a, a country for the sake of what needed to be done. And it just seems like, according to Putman in his book, that the shift has gone, that we, we just, we, we, we look differently on how we allocate our time. And so, I, I grew up with my mom involved in PTA, right? Uh, my sister's brownies, scouts. Um, I, I, was, I was involved in a community that everybody knew my business on my block and the next block over. You couldn't get away with anything because somebody's mom was always watching, right? Um, It it was a different time. And now how we look at allocating our time, the trend is towards mainly ourselves, right? We're honest with that. We're a very inward culture today. Um, And our immediate family. We spend less time doing things and more time watching them. Okay? and I, I think that's my excuse you know well I don't want to play it I want to watch it but yet that's that's predominant across whether it's age limit or whatever is that we have turned into a people who are more of a spectator than a participant in that there's a shift from how we do social capital and so this idea that social capital was something that was important so you need to be around people so that you could learn how to like uh, respond to people and you knew how to interact with people and you're going to meet people that are like you, you're going to like you, you're going to meet some people that are, have different views than you and, and so I need that social capital. I need to join something. I need to be a part of something so that I can navigate the process of working with people well because that will do well for me. So there's this idea of social capital but it seems like that's not the motivation anymore for people. Maybe we're finding that in other places. Uh, You know, I think uh, Woody Allen said it this way. 80% of life is just showing up. Um, I I remember teachers telling me in college that if you just like show up every day and turn this in, you will do fine in my class, right? And it's amazing how many people fail those classes because they can't attend and they can't do the daily assignment. It's, It's really not rocket science, but yet... Part, truly, 80% is just showing up. Half the battle is, is, is just being a part of something. And yet we see it across the board. Americans are disengaging from the community. They're disengaging at work. I go to do this so that I can live for this. So we disengage from work. Um, and so keeping a workforce in place is, is a struggle for those who hire uh, people at all times. So it's, it's that way in our communities. In workplaces, it's that way in the church. Volunteering and involvement are at all-time lows. So why? Why this disengagement with uh, the world that is around us? Why such a move to spectator instead of participant? I think, I think there's a couple of things. I, I think one of them is going back to the golden rule. You know the golden rule, right? Do unto others as they would do unto you. I think... Our reflection to that is, you know what, I, I tried to do what my mom told me. I tried to be nice to people, and you know what, they weren't nice back. So I'm done. And so we've been burned by people. <clears throat> I think So one of the reasons we disengage is because I don't want to be a part of something that's going to treat me like that. And so we pull out or we pull away. We've been burned. This idea of general reciprocity, this idea that, you know, what I can do for another will actually come back around and then benefit me. And and I think that's true, and I think that's actually a good thing. Uh, Honestly, there's some things that I can provide to the community that others can't. But there are things that they can provide that I cannot do on my own. And so this idea of general reciprocity is is incredible, and it's prudent for us to have. This idea kind of like pay it forward so that uh, out of the goodness of the community in which we are part of, But I think generalized reciprocity is a community asset. But let me tell you this, generalized gullibility is not. Like, I don't want to be that person who's just gullible, who's just going to be nice and let somebody burn me again. Right? And so our society says, if you've been burned (coughs) in community, then walk away and don't be stupid enough to jump in again. But that doesn't seem to be what is happening in Acts 2. You know, it's, it's the word, of, people love to talk about karma, right? Which is uh, our American idea that, you know, you're going to get what you're, what's yours. You cut me off, then I hope that something bad happens to you. And that turns into our community. Because we've been burned, we, we, we don't want to put ourselves out there again to be burned, and then we kind of want something bad to happen to them. I'm, I'm sure that's just me talking. That's probably not you. I'll just admit that. Um, you know, the idea of fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. And, and let, me, let me help you discern if that's you or not. Let me, you just answer this question. You don't have to do it out loud, but you're either one of these two people, right? Generally, you would say this, either that most people can, can be trusted or that you can't be too careful in dealing with people. Are you one that says, you know what? Uh, people can't be trusted, or, you know, we we can trust most people. I I grew up in a time that all the TV shows had this same kind of idea, especially if it was a murder mystery or some kind of, um, there's something wrong going, and there's somebody trying to fix it, like police shows and those kinds of things. So growing up with Adam 12 or (coughs) those kinds of shows about L.A. or New York or Chicago, I mean, it was this idea, Karen, sorry I'm not dogging Chicago, kind of am, but not really, but this idea that, (coughs) You know, there's something happening. A robbery is taking place on the corner, right? There's some kind of situation, and you got the, they have the the view of the person looking out the window and then quickly shutting the blinds. Like, I'm not getting involved. I'm backing off. And we in middle America love to think, but that's not what we do. We stop. Man, I was at an accident one time, and there were like 17 people pulled over. There were three more accidents, but there were 17 people pulled over help and we love to talk about Oklahoma in that kind of regard. But, but the truth is, we don't want to be involved. You know, I don't know. I don't know what that person, I, they, they might be setting me up to rob me. And so we think all these things through our heads, we drive by and justify why we don't stop and help. You know, we avoid involvement. We stay out. We just mind our own business. But let me say something that God has just churned over in my heart this week. And I'm going to say it a couple of times. And this is what I hold is true. That I believe, that Paul weeks, that I am a better man because of the people in this room. Let's jump into the text, Acts chapter 2, as we navigate through this. It's this an incredible picture. Verse 41, we didn't read, but it was part of what Justin talked about last week in the baptism. That, And, and the people who heard and received the word, about 3,000 joined on that day okay we, we don't have that anywhere else in scripture until this point that this, this, this community has jumped from listening to preaching conviction responding and then 3000 say I'm in now what do we do right and we see this natural thing that goes through here first of all we're going to talk about three things the gospel number one is embodied in community and then number two community is the, just the natural step for believers young and old new and old And then finally, God uses his community, the church, to sanctify and deploy us. Verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. And awe came over every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. The NIV says sincere hearts. Praising God and having favor with all the people Okay, catch that. All the people who aren't actually joining right now. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. This is the first of eight summary statements that Luke gives us in the book of Acts. Each one of them kind of giving us information about what is going on with this promise that Jesus has promised in leaving and going away. This coming of the Holy Spirit, preaching by Peter in Acts 2, and then this 3,000 people coming, and then eight other times in Luke. Uh, we see it in four, we see it in five, we see it in nine, and on and on. <clears throat> we might find a verse here or half a verse here talking about what is happening in the church. It gives us this summary statement about what is going on in this church community. You know, this, this whole process leads us to this idea that the gospel is embodied in community. And we see it in that first verse. We're going to spend most of our time in 42, because it says, and they were, talking about the 3,000, talking about the people that uh, take, have taken us to this point up in Acts 2, and they were characterized by these four um, G community qualities for gathering. The first thing before we jump into that is that they used the word, and they were Devoted. That's a word we're familiar with. We understand devotion. We understand allegiance and those kinds of things. I, I think the word um, gives a little bit more of a stronger picture of that in the Greek than maybe we, we might even realize. I love this definition that I found. Persistence to the point of obstinance. <laughs> okay. Okay. Now, I Drew understands this. I did a little junior high like youth ministry for a while. Yeah, I understand persisting obstinence. Like, let it go. It's three in the morning. Quit shooting spitwats or whatever it might be, right? I mean, we, we've all been around this, this idea of <clears throat> persistence to the point of like you're driving me crazy with your consistency. And this is what these 3,000 people were doing. They were devoted, they were unyielding, they had a faithful adherence, they were allegiant, they were all in. And they were devoted to these four things. The first is the apostles' teaching. Well, what is the apostles' teaching? This is is kind of a new thing. Again, the church is is just now, we're starting to smell the infancy of it. Now, again, you can argue with me, the church has always been, and I would agree with that. But in this prospect of since Jesus has left and made these promises, the church is now starting to be grounded, this community is grounded on four things that they were devoted to, and one was the apostles' teaching. Where did it come from? Well, they didn't have the New Testament, but you know, the apostles that we're talking about here were ones that were called by Jesus during his three years on earth. They followed him day after day. They were called, they said yes, and they followed him during that process. And so, maybe some of their teaching was what they heard Jesus talk about. Matter of fact, I'm pretty sure that they taught the Sermon on the Mount. I guarantee you, it was taught at some level many many times by jesus even though scripture only records it twice it was taught they knew that <clears throat> they knew not everybody else knew that yet and so they began to teach Jesus' words after hearing him teach and seeing how he handled and dealt with people they began to uh, mimic jesus and taught what he taught but they taught with authority Don't forget Acts, the beginning of Acts 2, the Holy Spirit came upon him. Don't forget what what Peter's doing. Remember Peter? This is the guy that couldn't make a decision and kind of changed with every group he was with. Peter gets up and goes crazy with an incredible sermon. And so we see this, this, this picture of the Holy Spirit penetrating through the lives of the people there. And so it's that, but, but this one is the one that's kind of fun for me to think about. For those of you that might be in a life group that tonight you may be meeting or sometime this week, and you're going to discuss the sermon. And so you're, you're in the process, okay, can you imagine these 3,000 going, okay, now did you understand what Peter was saying? And they're going, you know what, I don't know if I've ever seen it before, but when he opened up Joel 2 and he started talking about the Holy Spirit falling upon us, I had never put two and two together. For the first time, uh, people were hearing Joel too, and had different eyes and hearts to respond to that. Because of the Holy Spirit that had been put in them as they were filled in this incredible moment, they could hear and they said, let's, let's talk about Joel too," Or let's talk about what David talked about in Psalms, about himself and, and him being the Messiah example. Is that really what he meant to say? And Peter started to envelop that and develop that. This is the apostles teaching not only that but it was fellowship this is a fun word this is for us who are not greek scholars this is the greek word we get to know right koinonia it's like i speak spanish hola and taco bell right <laughs> greek is koinonia it's that word right i remember going to college and there was a ministry at missouri southern state college and it was called koinonia like oh it's biblical, and it's the Greek word for fellowship. And so we know this awesome word, but it's interesting. It's, this is a word used primarily by Paul, not by Luke. Matter of fact, Luke only uses it in this text. Didn't use it in the book of Luke. This is the only place he uses it in Acts where he's describing things. Paul uses it 18 other times. And it's, it's interesting when you see this word fellowship and how it's connected. It's connected to, like, our fellowship with the Spirit. And I, and I think that's an awesome Picture that is described there. It's this idea of describing the body as they gather in sharing communion, like we're going to do at the end of our service together. It's talking about this kind of fellowship. So, what is the definition of fellowship? You know, I grew up with uh, linger longers and fellowship dinners, and so you know, food after church and the kids scamper to get in front lines to get the Kentucky Fried Chicken, and everybody else you know fending for whatever's left. Mom's eating some kind of Watergate salad because that's all that's left. You know, some preacher, some elder somewhere is running to Walmart to find some more food. You know, that's a fellowship dinner. Or a fellowship after Sunday night service. Okay, wait. Never mind. We want to go there. You don't even know what that is. But it's, it's this idea that this is what we've defined fellowship to be. <clears throat> it's an event. We create a time. We make an announcement in the bulletin and people show up and then they bring their chairs and everybody brings a snack or a dessert. That's a fellowship. But the word is so much fuller than that. And it actually does entail eating together. But it's, it's this idea of intimacy. Is that what he's trying to get across? That, that, that something is happening with 3,000 people that have been transformed. And so now they have chosen to put themselves in a place where they're vulnerable. Where they're, they're intimate. Where they are sharing and, and they're not keeping stuff in locked closets. But this is it. And there were refrigerator rights. You know, um, you ever done this? Have some people come over and you shut certain doors? Just like, and the, you know what that means, right? If you're the visitor, you don't go in those doors. That means they're not clean. Like, oh, there's Titus's room. Shut the door. He didn't clean it. We got people, hi, how we doing? Yeah, let's sit in here. Julie's vacuuming as people. Yeah, come on in here. Let me make some popcorn while you're visiting, right? No, this fellowship they're talking about is this intimacy, this this coming together, this this like I want to be in front of you just as I am. And this is the fellowship he's talking about. This spiritual devotedness connects fellowship also with, number three, the breaking of bread. You know, this is more than... Just gathering and having a dinner together. This was specifically the spiritual idea was the coming together. And to remember what Jesus said on the night of his betrayal, it's it's not surprising that the twelve that sat and heard Jesus describe something that they didn't quite understand had a crucifixion, a death, a crucifixion, a burial, and a resurrection to understand that one of the first things that was something to be devoted to was what Jesus told them to do, which is as often as you take this bread which is broken for me and this blood which poured out, which I, poured out for, I will pour out for you, do this in remembrance of me, that this community at its beginning said we have to do this. What I find interesting, and most scholars would tell us, is that they were doing this at least daily, if not more. You see, this was a community that was so intimate, that was so hungry for the scriptures to have this new understanding for what God had planned for them, that they gathered, that they shared, that they listened, and that they remembered what God had given through this incredible Lord's Supper. I like how Paul says it in 1 Corinthians. He says it this way, for as often as you eat and drink this cup you proclaim the death the lord's death until he comes and so at the beginning they were awaiting for the messiah to come and then finally we see the prayers the prayers they were i think it's interesting they were still visiting the temple why well okay they just heard this sermon right we're still in acts two We're going to see in uh, Acts uh, 7, Stephen's going to talk a little bit about the temple and some issues there, but they were doing what believers did. Believers in Yahweh, they went to the temple. The temple had times of prayer, and so the 3,000 say, hey, that's going to be a part of our day, we're just going to go to the temple. Morning, 3 in the afternoon, we're going to go and we're going to pray together. But can you imagine, the temple began to offer some... confusion in their minds and and again we see the church navigate through this but they weren't going to the temple like for an appeal to a priest and for a sacrifice of a lamb to cover the sins of their lives they they were hearing about what happened when peter preached and says this christ that you crucified is savior and lord and this is what he did for your sin so repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins and they were starting to live this out. And I can imagine the joy that they were going into the temple with a whole different attitude than ever before. Because of this, this devotion to him, of following him, that their prayers were different and they would become even more different. A good Jewish person would be praying through the Psalms and, and we could see that here and they would be coming and praising God and 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 chanting, his love endures forever. I think that because of the apostles' teaching, they they began to learn the prayer that Jesus gave the disciples and and those at the Sermon on the Mount. He says, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, right? Your will be done. And they began to pray this. And so these were the four things that they were devoted to because of the work of Christ. The gospel was central to this initial first gathering of believers after this feeling of the Holy Spirit, too. So community is just this natural step. It's just the obvious step for believers, young and old. You see, we're hardwired for community. You know, I, I tend to believe that when we were made in the image of God, one of the things that is part of his image is that he is a communal God. Right, we could, we could get into and we could have a discussion about that. But this triune God who lived in community as, as the Godhead has called us, has made us to be hardwired for community. And it's interesting because I, I see even those who do not have the Holy Spirit, it doesn't, it, you don't have to have God to want to, to be a part of a group. Um, we taped a bunch of movie, or shows this week because this is like new movies weeks. Right? And so I think Friday we watched one of these shows that everybody says is the next greatest show. I don't know. I mean, the jury's out. I watched one episode. But it's this uh, millionaire of the things. million more things. Something like that. Right? Anyway, the crux of the story, I don't want to give it away, but the crux of the story is they're in an elevator and this is how these four guys met. The elevator stuck and they didn't know each other. Random guys. They found a commonality with the Boston Bruins hockey team and they became best friends for life. That's just how we are. A group of people become a group because of just, it doesn't matter what it is. You move to a neighborhood, oh, you're a group, right? You go to this school, you're a group. You go to this preschool, oh, you're friends for life, right? I mean, it's it's, it's how we are, it's how we roll. Why? Because all of us have been hardwired for community. Yet there is a distinctive between what we would call Christian community and the community that the world offers. You see... Like the devoted things that this 3,000 were about, the word of God was tantamount, not the human mind. Truth was critical and central, not desire. There was a love that was different than the love that community talks about. It was this, the Bible calls it an agape love, this this love of sacrifice and this love of service, uh, not a love that is controlling to get you to do something for me. You see, human love is directed to the other person for his own sake. But spiritual love, this love that we talk about, is love for others, for Christ's sake. And we see this purpose for why we are united. And, and I love how the, the psalmist in 133 says, how beautiful is it when brethren choose to dwell together in unity. And see, that's what we see. We see a completeness. We see a completeness of unity, of community, and we see a unity in community, let me let me just give you this quick uh, interpretation, in my opinion, to the verses we just read, beginning with verse forty-one. So, three thousand people were baptized, a separated people. Verse forty-two, we see the marks of their devotion, a steadfast people. Verse forty-three, an awe came over the people, a sanctified people. Miraculous signs and wonders among us in verse forty-three. You know, this is what Jesus promised, by the way. He says, I tell you what, it's good for me to leave because something greater is coming. Matter of fact, you will do greater works than these. This is Jesus saying that. And you know what happens? 3,000 come to follow him. That's pretty miraculous. I don't, I don't know if Jesus ever had that kind of a call, right? Acts 19, it's amazing. So Paul is preaching. You know, he's going to be introduced later in Acts, and, and he is preaching, and it's crazy, but there's this verse that describes that they took his apron and cloths that were touched by him, and they just took them, and, and, and the cloth without Paul was healing people. Miraculous, greater things than these. A spectacular people. Verse 44, Jesus' prayer for unity was coming to life. What he said in John 17 with his apostles, I pray that my people would be one, and Jesus' prayer is coming to life with this organic oneness, mutual concern, and caring like-mindedness. You see, they were single-minded people. Later, it says, believers had everything in common, sharing and selling to meet the needs of folks, <clears throat> spontaneous, not coerced. It's not a requirement, but they chose to be a sacrificial people. And not just a Sunday event, but day to day, they let their spirituality, their spiritually transformed lives fill out in the mundane of daily life. They were a spiritual people with glad and generous hearts, They praised God. They were a singing people. The Lord added to their number and they had a good standing with their neighbors. They were a successful people. Is that us? Does that describe you and me? You know, I I think the church, since the inception of what happened on, on this day of Pentecost, has been trying to emulate this. matter of fact, churches have started to be saying, we're going to get back to Acts 2. I mean, I heard that all through college. Oh, we got to get back to the original. We've got to be doing those things. And, and I agree wholeheartedly uh, with that. But it still seems like whether there are new churches starting or, or new denominations kicking into gear, and we all have these ideas for the perfect community, we, we, we tend I think to fall short of what Acts 2 is trying to play out for us. Uh, Some of you may be familiar with Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Incredible uh, story of a man who lived during World War II, was imprisoned, ultimately died within a month before the war was over. (laughs) It's in that time that he wrote some incredible, incredible books. One of them is Life Together. And I want to just read this quote, and I think it's on the screen, and and, and we're going to talk a little bit about these couple of them. It says, many times a whole Christian community has broken down because it had sprung from a wish dream. The serious Christian sits down in Christian community for the first time with a a definite idea of what life together should be, but God's grace shatters such dreams. Just as surely as God desires to lead us to a knowledge of genuine Christian fellowship, so surely must we we be overwhelmed by a great disillusionment with others, with Christians in general, if we are fortunate with ourselves. I don't know, but that's convicting. You see, as we play the game of trying to create this perfect community, the first place we need to look at is ourselves. And ask that question honestly, as we walk into this building, and you know, I met folks that are here with, with their granddaughters. I met some of you guys have been around for years. Um, people that are new to the church, people that have been around. We've got all these mixtures here, and, and every one of us <clears throat> brings to the table what we expect to find in Christian community. You know, and, and, and we need to admit that what we want it to look like is broken because we are broken. We are broken people. You know, the serious Christian sits down in a Christian community for the first time with a definite idea of what life together should be. Like, oh, if, if, it, if it comes down and <clears throat> it meets on Sunday nights and it's not too early and it's not too late and it's just this much time and we cancel for whenever anything else is going on and, <clears throat> and, we, you know, and we don't mess up with, uh, Friday, uh, with Sunday afternoon football, that's perfect. Oh, and then they have my favorite snacks, oh, that's even more Perfect. But God wants to shatter that. I love how he says it, but God's grace shatters our picture of what we think, our dreams of community because that's not the community that which he wants to do work in us. You see, God is after something much more than new friends and a new identity of, of this is my group that I belong to. He's after so much more than that. He wants you And he wants to do a work in all of you. Later on, he quotes this. um, He who loves his dream of community more than the Christian community itself becomes a destroyer of the latter." Been offended, been hurt by the body of Christ, been disappointed, disenfranchised, disillusioned by the body of Christ, surprise it's a bunch of broken people who need a savior It needs a bunch of people who are going to say you know what I'm going to be devoted to some other things other than my kids or my family or my job I'm going to be committed to to God and his ways I'm going to be devoted to his teachings and his gathering of fellowship I'm going to be committed to being with people and intervening in prayer with them I'm going to be about coming together and being regular and remembering what Christ has done and living from my identity in that. You see, when we learn to love people for Christ's sake instead of our own sake, we bear the fruit of Christian community. A church full of communities that laugh and cry and pray and eat and confront and encourage one another will be a force that reflects the power of the gospel to cover all of our sin, past and present, and celebrate ongoing work Of the Spirit in our lives. We have to repent of being individualistic lives who pretend community. We have to repent of a self centered need to be surrounded by friends for my benefit, guarding our lives, not showing weakness or sin. You see, it's grace that will shatter that drain, and it's grace that compels us to be known because God has already outed us as sinners on the cross. Surprise, you're a sinner. Surprise, there are some areas of your life that make you in the, in, the, in the face of this world as losers. Because we are. Do you have that intimacy? Do you have that fellowship in the community and the body of Christ? Finally, last, last section here: God uses his community, the church, to sanctify and deploy us. This idea of sanctification is, is, a, is an awesome word. This idea of setting us apart and making us holy. It's, it's what the Holy Spirit is, restoring the image of God in us. And the purpose is to develop Christ's likeness in our lives. And so we have this church, this community, this family, this brotherhood. It is not an ideal, we realize, but a reality created by God in Christ in which we participate. First Thessalonians 4 says this, For this is the will of God, your sanctification that God is doing a work. You see, the church is like the believer's sanctification. We're not called to come to church and fill its spiritual pulse and go, that's a godly church. The Holy Spirit was there. That's not your job. That's not my job. That's not, that's not the primary thing that we're supposed to do. We're not here to take the temperature and make sure, is everybody healthy The more thankfully we daily receive what is given to us, the more steadily our fellowship will increase and grow from day to day as God pleases. You see, sanctification cannot be done in isolation. That's not what God planned it for it to be. You know, you look at Galatians 5, right? And the fruit of the Spirit are, right? This is the this is the fruit. This is what you display when you start living for Christ. This is what he's starting to, to grow on the stocks of the 3,000 people who gave their life to Jesus as they started to grow peace and patience and love and kindness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control, right? Think about those. Those aren't done in isolation. They're done with another person. How do you learn to be peaceful? By learning to be at peace with all men. How do you, how do you learn to be loving? By loving others. God has called us and he's given us this incredible gift of the church to sanctify us. I love the imagery and the metaphors for the word of community in scripture. We have the temple, we have some of you know, the building, it's the kingdom of priests, it's the body, it's the family, it's the flock, it's the bride of Christ. But you know, the temple needs the Holy Spirit, and a building needs a cornerstone, the kingdom of priests needs a way to God, the body needs a head, the family needs a father, the flock needs a shepherd, the bride needs a husband. You see, as a family, I need brothers and sisters, and aunts and uncles, and moms and dads. As a body, I'm needed for the body to function as it's designed. If I am not being a part of the body, the body suffers for it. See, part of this sanctifying work happens as we live and dwell and commune with one another. I will say it again. I am better because of the people in this room. Are you better because of the community in which you surround yourself for the glory of God and for his sanctifying work in and through you? we're going to celebrate in worship and in remembering the very thing that Jesus did before the night he was betrayed. You know, As he is trying to figure out the next steps, he says, let's stop here, and I want you to remember, and he holds up a piece of bread. He says, this bread is like my body that's going to be broken for you, and this cup is like the blood that's going to be poured out. And the 12 were looking around, not quite understanding what he was saying. And then in a matter of a couple of months, we're transformed because what he promised by what he did is now for us. And God gets to do a sanctifying work in us. Let's worship. Let's, let's commune as a family. And let's be the body of Christ.